everybody, and welcome to episode 38 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I am David Smith of The Athletic. My usual co-host, Alan Kavana, is on a well-deserved vacation this week. But don't fear, I'm joined by a longtime friend of the pod, NASCAR.com's fantasy mage himself, RJ Kraft. RJ, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. You, you could have also added first guest. First, first that is guest. true. Yes, um, I, I would imagine that's a, a, a pretty big bullet point on your uh, your CV going forward. Um, but it should be. I, it absolutely yes. should be. Yes, absolutely. Um, RJ, you, you're a regular listener. You know what we do. Let me run through uh, what to expect. Folks, on this episode, we're going to delve into the ramifications of Dover's race results and whether a championship contender or two have reached their doomsday scenarios. We'll also dig into a couple listener questions, and we will do our best to preview this weekend's race at the often imitated, never duplicated Talladega Super Speedway. But first, as always, this is episode 38 of Positive Regression. This is the Elliott Sadler edition. RJ, there were only three seasons at the NASCAR Cup Series level in which Elliott Sadler scored production in equal equipment ratings above 1.0. All three of them transpired while he was driving the number 38 M&M's Ford for Robert Yates racing from 2003 to 2005. Uh, that was spanning his ages 28 to 30. Best season of his career came in 2004. He won his Daytona 500 qualifying race. He called that the biggest win of his professional career. I guess he quite fancied Daytona. Uh, he later won that year at Texas and then won the fall race at Fontana back when California Speedway had two races. Uh, RJ, that was a race I remember because I was holed up in my apartment in Gainesville, Florida while a hurricane was rolling through. I had electricity long enough to see the important parts of that race, including Elliot Sadler winning it, but it was a, it was a rough period. RJ, what are your thoughts of uh, Mr. Sadler? Is it bad that, you know, I wasn't a big enough NASCAR fan when I was growing up that I really only identify him with the one or not the, In nine. the Xfinity series? Yeah, oh. I only identify him with the Xfinity cars, to be honest. Yeah, and, and I, and I think that there were a lot of younger listeners that might do that, but for a while he, he was, he was the, uh, the candy man before Kyle Busch came a call in. Ironically, we were heading to Talladega this weekend, but he had back-to-back seasons in which he flipped at the end of uh, a Talladega race. Uh, it became a became a trope uh, somewhat. But RJ, I, I got to ask you: so, what you connect him with the one car in the Xfinity series? What's the what's the lasting Elliott Sadler memory for you? You know, honestly, the first one that jumps out to me is when he was very upset with Ryan Priest, I believe two years ago in the Homestead finale. He felt like Priest held him up and that, and that cost him a shot at the title, uh, when he finished runner up in a bridesmaid for, I think, the fourth time, uh, in the Xfinity series. That's like the first one that jumps into my mind. Although I will also say his, uh, his mullet mohawk look that he was sporting at Las Vegas uh, a couple weeks ago, fresh in the mind. Fresh in the mind. Okay. Yeah. You know, on, on the run in with Ryan Priest, I never really understood it. I think he, he just blamed Priest for racing him too hard at the end of the race, but William Byron managed to pass Ryan Priest just fine and went on to, to win the Xfinity Series championship. I think Sadler was just frustrated and didn't yeah. handle his emotions very well. 
Um, and there was a, a, another uh, another period, maybe two years earlier, he had this this air that there was a, a chip on his shoulder about some higher forces preventing him from winning the Xfinity Series title. And I remember him vividly crossing the start finish line at Iowa Speedway. And he shouted into the radio, they're not taking this championship away from me, which is kind of excellent because <laughs> my goodness, if you think everyone is out to get you, Hey, you know what? Uh, if it, if it makes you a better driver, go for it. It was just, it was, uh, it was entertaining, um, to the point of comedy, but entertaining nonetheless <laughs> in the cup series, memorable number 38 car. And that's why this episode, episode 38 is the Elliot Sadler edition. Onto the show though, RJ. The NASCAR Cup Series descended upon Dover last weekend. Kyle Larson emerged the winner, his first victory in two years, and it locked him into round three of the playoffs. This race was relatively uneventful, just one caution flag outside of the stage breaks. Larson had the second fastest car at his disposal. No surprise there. He'd been knocking on the door of a win at the one-mile-plus track type. If you recall, he had the fastest car in this year's Southern 500 at Darlington, a track uh, similar in size but certainly correlates closely with with Dover results. Uh, RJ, what did you make of Larson's day? Did he take the race by the scruff of the neck, or was he a recipient of a day that saw congested passing and one really bad pit stop by the 19 team. I was, I was going to say the latter on that one. I think, I think the biggest thing that worked in his benefit was that the 19 had that, that bad stop at the, at the start of the final stage end of stage two, uh, that put him behind the eight ball a little bit. Cause I, cause I think it was setting up to be a 19 verse 42, kind of duel where the, the 19 seemed to have the faster car, uh, especially late in the runs. Uh, and, you, and you also kind of saw that late in the race when it looked like he was starting to chip into his time a bit uh, yeah. before, he, before he got caught up with some lap traffic. But my, my question to you, David, is are you surprised that it's taken Kyle Larson two years to win again? Uh, no. Uh, if you look at Chip Ganassi racing, historically they have never – experienced sustained success for more than one year. Uh, so we think it was two years ago when he won uh, four races and Chip Ganassi racing as a whole looked incredibly strong. Seemingly that would have rolled over into 2018 and it just didn't. They had to make choices on where they were going to allocate their resources. They chose the mile and a half tracks, which I do think is pragmatic. That's what worked for Martin Truex the year prior when they won the championship at Furniture Row Racing. But it didn't work out very well uh, for the 42 team or the one team for that matter. This year, the approach has been the same. The 42 team has had sneaky speed RJ. They were, I believe, since early June, the second fastest car leading into the playoffs, but the results would not have shown that. Kyle Larson had a rash of practice crashes. He had a rash of race crashes that got in the way, but not only that, they weren't having the kind of speed consistently from stage one to stage two to the final run. Uh, where it would put him out front, give him the kind of track position he would need. That's what he's been facing. And this past weekend, it was as if 
the all the regression occurred, right? Like all all of the bad luck didn't happen to the 42. And I tell you what, you're right. You said the 19 was cutting in to the delta. It was what a five second lead with 20 laps to go, whittled down to about a second and a half yeah. at Dover, a mile track. That was impressive. The 19 car was the fastest in the race. More importantly, is the fastest in the fourth and final quarter of the race. A second place isn't a bad finish for Martin Truex to go forth in the playoffs, but uh, not enough time to catch Kyle Larson. Um, now, RJ, I'll, I'll have a question for you. For you, where does he stack up among the championship contenders? I mean, this is this was one bountiful weekend, but going forward, round three, I don't know. It, is it, it seems hit or miss to me. What say you? Uh, so at the beginning of the playoffs, we did a we did a panel sort of. Uh, like you guys did on the athletic, like who's your sleeper, who's your who's your early exit, whatnot. And I had Larson as my sleeper, uh, but I also thought that was just going to be good enough to get him to the round of eight. Uh, the round the round of eight does not stack up well for him. Uh, Martinsville statistically is one of his worst tracks, if not the worst track for him, and he's not that much better at Texas. So all I almost feel like with him, all your chips are in the Phoenix basket. And you're going to have to beat Harvick to do that. Um, I'd probably put him towards the back of whoever the rest of the eight are. And, and, and I say that not fully knowing who the other seven are going to be. Uh, but the, he's going to, he's going to come into that round already at a bit of a points deficit, more than likely. And then throw in the fact that Martinsville's one of his worst tracks. So he's probably not going to get off to the greatest start. And I would, I would say, uh, that he's probably towards the back of the line. I, I think it was extremely important for him to get this Dover win because when you look at the guys he was around in the standings, like Blaney has tended to be better at Talladega and Kansas. Bowman's been good to decent at all three in this round. Boyer's had more success at Talladega. Uh, Byron's had a, a little more success, I think, at Kansas. So, this was the place where he had to make hay. He did make hay to lock into the round of eight. But at the same time, I think that's about as far as he's going to go. Okay, so I'm, I am with you. Round three concerns me for him. He once told me that there wasn't anything in his development on dirt that resembled Martinsville. And that in Martinsville is a flat track. It contains tight corners, hard turns, where relative to what he was used, you have to come to a complete stop in order to turn the car. So it's been an understandable slow burn growth for him on that particular track. He had the 11th fastest car in Phoenix earlier this year and only the eighth fastest car at Texas. It's believable that this team could find something for Texas, but Phoenix is a unique beast it's practically a requirement then that Texas be a podium day for him. And if he does manage to clear it, RJ Homestead, it should be said that while he's performed well there, he's never actually won there. And with this rules package, we're going to see a kind of Homestead race we've never seen before. I'm not sure that that's a layup, but based on his efforts on the moderate 1.5 mile tracks this year, one could argue he had enough firepower to win at Chicagoland, that he should be competitive. 
Um, I'll tell you one thing, though. I do hope he cleans up his restarts in time. He ranks 15th right now in preferred groove restart retention after ranking 5th in 2018 and 2nd in 2017. The adjustment period for him with this new rules package has been real, and if it's still affecting him going forward, I don't see him advancing past the third round at all. And also, if he did get to Miami, restarts were what seemed to trip him up in that in those races when he's been up front late in those races. Like the, the 2016 one, he had a bad restart against Jimmy Johnson. 2017, he seemed to struggle on the restarts when it was basically him, Truex, and Kyle Busch towards the end. So, so like you said, not not a layup if if he did get there. RJ, the opposite end of the spectrum came within. The opening laps at Dover, it got, it got, uh, real in a hurry. Joey Logano and Chase Elliott suffering mechanical maladies. Elliott would not finish the race. Logano would go on to take three points from the race. Uh, not ideal. <laughs> RJ of the two, who do you feel has the necessary gravitas to dig out of this hole? God, when you're using, you know, Milady and, and Gravitas, big, big terms, my man. Uh, I'm, I'm going with the champ. Uh, you know, they've, they've overcome some adversity before. Uh, the fact that they haven't had the speed they've had in the beginning part of the season is, is quite concerning. Uh, but, I think Joey Logano might be the one driver that's most looking forward to Talladega as opposed to everybody else because uh, he knows he can cut into the deficit he's facing. Um, I would be, I will say this, if he does not substantially cut into that hole at Talladega, I will be extremely concerned for him because I, I think Talladega is the one trump card he holds over everybody else. Yeah, and that's a good point. Todd Gordon, uh, the crew chief for Joey Logano, alluded to being happy that Talladega was next on the schedule. Not only is it a wild card race for everyone involved, but I mean, Logano's success there is real. Uh, six top five finishes, including three wins in his last eight starts. I mean, Maybe maybe it's uh, a little unreasonable to be optimistic going into Talladega, but if there was anyone that, that would be allowed, I think it would be him. Um, it does strike me, though, that they might actually be better equipped for Kansas. Logano wanted a similar track this season in Las Vegas. He ranked second in speed in the playoff opener at Las Vegas, but he had the 13th fastest car when they visited Kansas earlier this year. So this isn't a gimme. Uh, RJ, I suppose he needs restarts going forward. Lots of them, actually. He ranks as the best restarter this season from a non-preferred groove. His average finish splits are telling as well. Consider this. Nearly four positions better in races where there are seven or more restarts than in races with less than seven RJ, if you were a betting man, do we see chaos over the next two weeks? Yes. Yes. I, I think the the picture close to the cut line uh, is pretty tight enough. Uh, you know, you've got, I think, Byron and, and Logano are essentially tied. Byron holds the tiebreaker because of his better finish at Dover. Uh, but you got Boyer and Elliott also within striking distance. And then I find it hard to believe... Uh, you, you push Larson off to the side because he's already advanced. 
But I find it hard to believe that the other drivers in the top seven, somebody is not going to have some sort of problem. I mean, we saw it at Dover, like we just talked about with Logano and Elliott. I don't, I don't think you could have fathomed what happened to the two of them in the first 10 laps happening as it did. Uh, and I, somebody's bound to run into trouble at Talladega because it lurks around literally every turn. Yeah. And look, I, I realize it's, it's sort of, uh, convenient that these two both had trouble because it's a really good talking point. Both are recent winners at Talladega. Both are recent winners at Kansas. I think I'm going to play contrarian. Chase Elliott's speed to me is undeniable. He is tied for the third fastest car uh, in the playoffs. Joey ranks ninth. Uh, the speed that we saw during the regular season, he ended the regular season fourth in central speed, and that has dropped. Uh, I don't like disappearing speed RJ, but, uh, I, I mean, look, I guess this is worth monitoring over the next two weeks. Yeah. I, I got, I'm going to throw out a little, uh, crystal ball question for you since we, we talked a little bit about Logano and Elliott. Uh, if you had to pick, would you say Byron is the most likely in the top eight to drop out or, or a Bowman or a Keselowski or a bigger surprise? Hmm. I actually like the, ability of William Byron and Chad Canals to grab low hanging stage points. I think that they make that a focus. Um, when I did my round table for the athletic, I picked him to advance. Um, I, I don't know. I, I like Keselowski too, because his speed has been good. He's been the fastest Penske car. That's a tough call. What were my other options? Or Bowman Bowman, but he was also runner up at both these races in the spring. Okay, but Talladega just as volatile as it is, we can't assume Correct. that everything materializes in the same manner. So if that is just a big question mark, I would say that it is solely dependent on his Kansas run. And I liked what I saw from the 88 team at Dover. We talked about last week on positive regression. Martin Truex and Alex Bowman were the two best passers in the Dover spring race. They finished 1-2. Uh, they also had two very high surplus passing values in this race. They finished second and third. Alex Bowman's car can turn on the bank tracks. I like him going into Kansas. This is going to be tough. I don't know that it's going to be such a straightforward cut. Someone is going to have problems or it is going to be an extremely close cut we might even see the tiebreaker induced. Yeah, I'm with. I, I think the tiebreaker is going to come into play when when it's all said and done at Kansas. So next up, RJ, a few listener questions that popped up on Twitter in recent weeks, courtesy of our show's handle at PosregPod. RJ, I could use your help in answering them. Uh, our first question comes from Joshua Rutherford. With rumors of the composite body in 2021 and everyone getting the same chassis more or less, does this negate the need for partnerships? In essence, Joe Gibbs Racing and Levine Family Racing, uh, the technical alliances that we've come to know. RJ, what, uh, I don't know, what do, what do you think? I'm kind of of the mindset that more data is a good thing. Uh, and if you're, especially if it, I would say it really behooves the single car or the, or the smaller organization to, to have those partnerships, uh, in this case, you know, Levine or a Germain to JGR or RCR. So, so in those scenarios, I, I think, I, I would think the smaller orgs might be a little more aggressive or the single car organizations might be a little more aggressive in trying to maintain or keep those partnerships. 
So I don't, I don't expect that they would go away. I, and I don't either. My take on this is that alliances will remain, uh, because some teams will need cars. All teams, if they can afford it, are willing to pay for intelligence. Technical alliance is a catch-all term to begin with. Each alliance is different already. And just because the cars are the uh, quote-unquote same, it doesn't mean teams will want to buy them outright or massage them in hopes of keeping up with JGR or Penske. They could just pay for someone else to do all of that work. Um, I don't know that NASCAR teams are given proper credit for this, but they all in one form or another, lean into intelligence, whereas in other sports, it just might not be the case. Uh, RJ, when we sat and talked in Charlotte, your <laughs> Philadelphia Phillies are apparently having some internal strife around pitching and statistical analysis. Can you please articulate what's happening here? Uh, it's a, it's an old school versus new school dilemma. I, I also didn't think we were going to bring up the Phillies on the podcast since we, we just still don't know if Gabe Kampler is returning as manager. Um, <laughs> so that's really opening up a can of worms for me, but, but it's a, essentially it's old school versus new school. They're, they're looking at, at, you know, the, the pitchers, some of the more veteran pitchers interpret data some one way or, or don't want to have something force fed to them. Whereas it's some of the younger guys are a little more, uh, open to it. And then you also have guys being told how to do things a certain way when they've done things a different way their entire, uh, uh, career. And, and one of the examples in the article mentioned that Zach Eflin, who's, I guess, is best described as, as a number four or five type starter had pitched as a sinker baller his entire career. And the new structure of the Philly staff wanted him to start throwing four seamers up. And that was something that wasn't really in his comfort zone. And after he got demoted to the bullpen, they, he worked out some things and he came back into the rotation in late August, early September and basically decided if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down the way I feel comfortable pitching, which was as a sinker baller and he pitched well. And it was kind of an indictment of the entire staff. Long story short. So, yeah, and thank you for, uh, for taking that curveball, huh? Pun intended. But you know, I, I, it strikes me that NASCAR doesn't experience this problem because already built in to NASCAR teams are uh, the intermediary, the engineer. You think about it, what does an automotive engineer know well? Well, they know math and they know cars. NASCAR teams do not get enough due for being as analytically savvy as they already are. There's a ton of data going into just setup preparation each and every weekend and that's the kind of thing that we see take place within a technical alliance. It isn't just about cars. It's not just about uh, construction. I recall there was one team, I'm, I can't mention them now, um, but they were in an alliance. They received cars from their parent organization, and they felt the cars were too heavy. They had to do a lot of work on those cars. Eventually, they thought the alliance was not worth it because of that work. But the most important nugget of that technical alliance and seemingly most technical alliances is the shared intelligence and getting better through the use of stats and uh, a brain trust. And uh, I don't know, maybe your, maybe your Phillies need to find a parent organization <laughs> and, uh, and just, you know, get, get better that way. They, they, need um, a they need a parent is what they need. 
Uh, okay. Uh, listener question number two comes from Mick Rose. Are there any crew chiefs in the Xfinity series based on the data that you feel could be the next Ray Everham? RJ, this is a million dollar question if there ever was one, but who is in the Xfinity series and catching your eye right now? I, I'm going to take, I'm going to drink some of the Dale Jr. Kool-Aid, Dave Lenz, which, which maybe is the easy pick, I guess. You know, he's got two straight Xfinity titles with two different drivers. And I'll be honest, I've been really impressed with the work, uh, he's done with Noah Grax in the second half of this year, uh, so far. They were, I think his initial starts, initial couple months there at JRM, they, they seem to be a back of the top 10 to top 15 car. Uh, and in the past, you know, I'd say, two to three months, he's been running in the top five a little more consistently, top six to seven. They, they never seem to have a bad, a bad race. Uh, and he never seems to put him in a bad spot. Yeah. In my Xfinity series playoff preview for motorsportsanalytics.com, I wrote about uh, Dave Ellens and Noah Gragson. They were one of the two best closers during the regular season in the Xfinity series. Uh, the car got faster as the race progressed and if I'm not mistaken, Gragson's average finish better than Tyler Reddick's last year. And Ellens was the crew chief for Reddick. He was a crew chief for William Byron. So there is a lot to like there. He also uh, has the tutelage of Chad Canals as a feather in his cap. So that is one. Um, but RJ, on this point, uh, this was a point that I made last year. Uh, I, I wrote an article about this. I wrote about the promotion of Kevin Mendering and the uncertainty built into the Xfinity series race calling just because of the implementation of stages has clouded the evaluation process. And I wrote about Richard Boswell, the crew chief for the 98 car at Stuart Haas. He accomplished a lot last year. He won races with Kevin Harvick and Chase Briscoe running a limited schedule in 2018, but he called those races without the need to pad stage points. He was essentially calling a race without any outside ramifications. And try as I may, it is very hard to evaluate him against other crew chiefs adhering to a point structure. It's as if he was in his own race. Um, so this isn't an easy question to answer, but I do like Richard Boswell. I also like Travis Mack, crew chief for Michael Annette, who leads the series in positions gained during green flag pick cycles. I tell you what, uh, there, there are a couple other guys. Uh, Brian Wilson at Team Penske. Yep. He's unlike, uh, he's very likely the next man up whenever Roger Penske decides he no longer values all forms of continuity. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that might be one to watch out for. But I mean, it, it's just not easy to evaluate. Uh, I would value finding speed and grabbing hold of undeserving track position. Such things can carry over to the Cup Series, but there are no guarantees. It's a risky proposition to be sure. I encourage our listeners to just kind of have your own grading system and just and look for that. There are no guarantees that any of that translates just based on the, the differences of the races, but it's uh, certainly a fun exercise. RJ, let's take some time now to look into the NASCAR Camping World Truck Series. The month-long hiatus comes to an end this weekend at Talladega. In the midst of the playoffs, uh, two big-time championship contenders have emerged in Brett Moffitt and Ross Chastain. RJ, we know they're clicking, but what have you seen? Is there anyone in the playoff field 
who has anything for these two guys. I'm going to give you the old Lee Corso. Not so fast, my friend. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. Uh, Austin Hill, who, fun fact, second in the points going into this round. I did not know that. Um, <laughs> uh, I really perfect. didn't. I did not know that. No. I thought I, no, I it was Moffitt and Chastain, one, two. Um, it's, I think he's only ahead of Chastain by like a point. But he's already got a super speedway win this year, so he, he should be somebody to contend with at Talladega. Uh, two wins in his last four. And I think more importantly, given the the tracks that are left, uh, especially at the end with Miami, 1.5-mile results. He's pretty much been solid there all year. He got the win at Vegas uh, last month, and he's had top fives at Kansas and Chicago. Uh, he is not somebody I would sleep on, as well as the fact that he has the championship-winning crew from last year. I hear what you were saying. Uh, I appreciate the fact that you said all of that, but I'm not as optimistic. Uh, he, he is the closest driver to them in that Hattori truck. Um, look, we've seen now the last two stretch runs in 2018 and 2019. Shigi Hattori reinvests in his team and they go racing and they're pretty strong. But while Austin Hill's been able to secure wins fairly recently, his Speed rankings for the last four races were 4th, 12th, 3rd, and 5th. With the road course omitted, he was able to secure positive surplus passing values in the remaining three races, but for the whole of this season, his surplus passing is at a minus 1.19%. That is good for 16th Mm. among regulars or semi-regulars. Moffat and Chastain are just too good. Because if it happens that all three are eligible for the championship at Homestead, he's going to need something to happen to them in order for him to become a more realistic championship threat. And don't get me wrong, that is not impossible, but it is a tough position to be in. He's pretty much dependent on those two guys faltering until something changes I think it's a two-man battle. I think we are going to have an epic showdown between Brett Moffat and Ross Chastain. But RJ, I will give you this. At least Austin Hill has a pathway. Uh, there are some drivers in the final six. I don't believe we can say that for. Um, but I want to pick your brain. Is there a pretender among the final six? It's hard not to say Tyler Ankrum. I mean, the average finish of 13.3 in the last round, which, to be frank, if it wasn't for some engine failures at Vegas, shouldn't have been enough to get it done. And it almost wasn't enough to get it done uh, to get him through to this round. It's definitely not going to be enough to get through to the championship for. I expect him to essentially go quietly into the good night in this round. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll be happy you- to be proven wrong, but... but uh, I just, that's the one guy I just, I can't see it with. I I, I think we have sussed out the fraud here. Uh, you know, Alan isn't here, so I'll take the opportunity to besmirch the name of Tyler Ankrum. That's his Mr. Excitement, RJ. I don't know if you knew that. but I, I do remember him talking about him. Look, Ankrum is a rookie. It is his age 18 season. And his underlying numbers tell us that you're right, RJ, the end of the road is probably near. His DGR Crosley 17 truck ranks as the 12th fastest overall, 
the 13th fastest truck in the playoffs, that's not good because there are only eight playoff teams. And it's only, uh, it's only track type with an average per race speed ranking above 10.0 is the two mile non-drafting track type that holds no presence in the playoffs. Talladega is an animal, unlike any he's experienced, and that is literal. If you remember, he was ineligible to compete at Daytona, so this weekend's race at Talladega is his first on a drafting track in the truck series, and his surplus passing value is minus 4.26%. Only Natalie Decker, Jennifer Joe Cobb, and Spencer Boyd rank worse. But you know what? He, he's in the final six. He does have uh, the, the fair shot. RJ, want to talk about a driver not in the final six uh, because it is noticeable. Grant Enfinger, the regular season champ, he is ranked fourth in production and equal equipment rating, trailing only Kyle Busch, Ross Chastain, and Brett Moffitt. And he is the fourth most efficient passer in the series, second most efficient among series regulars. What do you make of him? Uh, what do you make of his early playoff exit? Uh, I mean, I think it, it goes to show the value of being able to rack up some stage wins and, and race wins. And, and he, I mean, to put it bluntly, he just didn't do that this year. He was very consistent. Uh, probably, probably the most consistent truck week in and week out in terms of running in the top, you know, five to seven, uh, every week, but just couldn't seem to get it over the finish line. I mean, he walked into the first round of the playoffs with 19 playoff points, and 15 of those were courtesy of the champ, the regular season champ bonus. So was, he he had a little bit of, of trouble sealing the deal there. Um, I would not be shocked if he won one of these next three. Um, I, I think we are going to see a non-playoff driver come away with with one race win out of, in this round. Uh, he's won at Talladega before. And like we've talked about, you know, he's been one of the better trucks all year. So I don't, I think he'll definitely pull off a win, but it'll be a, essentially a case of too little too late for his playoff hopes. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, Alan and I on this show have talked about the lengths Kyle Busch Motorsports seemingly went to to just diminish the stock of several Toyota development drivers. That is a book unto itself, RJ, but Thor Sport Racing employs three drivers ranked inside the top six in pier. That's Enfinger, Ben Rhodes, and Matt Crafton. And their fourth driver, Johnny Sauter, ranks as the most efficient passer. I could argue Thor Sport Racing has done more to suppress the impact of its drivers than KBM. Uh, the Las Vegas engine failure is just, that is just one thing. Enfinger ranked third in pier among series regulars in 2017. He went winless that season. He did not make the playoffs. He ranked third again in 2018. He did make the playoffs, did not make the championship four. I can't help but feel he is a good driver who has been shortchanged. Yes, he has been given the opportunity by Thor Sport, but they aren't taking advantage of the fact that he might be a top three driver in the truck series. They're just not gaining wins out of it. Uh, he is an Alabama native and a former winner at Talladega. So he'll be in the mix for the win there this weekend. And RJ, the truck series will be joined by the cup series. So uh, how about you, you join me for our, our usual positive regression cup series race preview 
because we're talking Talladega this week. But first question for you, RJ, do you like Talladega? Uh, I would say yes. I'm, I'm, I like variety. It's the spice of life. And I like having a, a super speedway race in the playoffs. I like having all different types of racing in the playoffs. Would I like the cars necessarily to not crash as much as, or, or, or have as, as big of impact as they potentially do? Uh, sure. But, but I, I like having the different style of racing as a, as a, essentially a one-off in this 10 race postseason. Uh, this is why you are the mage, my friend. Uh, you know, as, as an observer, I enjoy Talladega. I have no problem saying that. And I, uh, especially have enjoyed the races of late where there have been discernible efforts in planning around the big one. We saw it last year with Stuart Haas racing, and we saw it in the spring with the Chevrolet teams. As far as the racing goes, I know as an analyst, I'm supposed to view this as far too volatile, and in some respects I do, but I also like that it's a seemingly different discipline of racing. It's like road courses. It's like dirt tracks. It's its own subgenre. Uh, I don't see it as an insult to my intelligence at all. I've adjusted expectations, and the Talladega races of late have been so cerebral that they exceeded those expectations. And this brings me to another subject, RJ. Driver decorum, Daytona and Talladega, based on the way drivers treat one another, are different tracks with vastly different races. Is this something that you've come across as well? I know you crunched the numbers for NASCAR.com on the fantasy side, what do you think? Is there a more predictive nature with Talladega than Daytona? That's tough. I see. I I, I take the easy way out and kind of lump them together. Although I, I the, the weird thing to me is you've got some drivers that are significantly better at one or the other, uh, even though it's the same style of racing. Which which is always, as somebody that didn't grow up on this sport uh, initially, kind of blows my mind a little bit. I know this might not be where we were necessarily going with this, but, um, you know, when, when you have the same style of racing, you'd think, Oh, it just lends itself to the, the other track. And in the case of certain guys that that's not the case, uh, a guy like Michael McDowell comes, comes to mind, uh, significantly better at Daytona can't seem to get out of his own way at Talladega. So that that's always kind of, made my mind kind of blow up a little bit with the with the same style of racing how how you might be better at one as opposed to the other track. Yeah, and you know what I think a big part of this for me is what the July Daytona race devolved into. It became unpredictable largely because the leaders have no druthers about wrecking the field, right? Brad Keselowski set off a pipe bomb uh, earlier this year when he said he was just going to crash cars. And when he actually did it, people were stunned. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. I don't know if it's because Talladega is bigger and the crashes are harder, but this kind of thing isn't happening at the same rate at Talladega. Uh, that's evident in the numbers. A top five car has an average crash inclusion rate of 12%. At Talladega, and over the last smattering of races at Daytona, it's 33%. That's triple the rate. There is a reverence for the front of the field at Talladega that, for whatever reason, just no longer exists 
at Daytona. So I, I just think that if there's, if there is less chaos, then there is more predictive nature. I think that that is what we're seeing. Maybe we're, we're seeing the drivers that can game plan a little bit better be rewarded as such. And RJ, that, uh, that brings me to, to kind of what we, we want to see because this kind of, uh, dovetails into it. Alan and I ask each other every week what we want to see from the race weekend. Uh, you're allowed to be specific or wide ranging. It doesn't matter. You do you. Uh, what do you want to see from 500 miles at Talladega? I am curious to see how Chevrolet works together. That would probably be my first bullet point because that was the biggest talking point coming out of the last Talladega race was how the bow ties seemingly under orders all got on the same page and did what Stuart Haas did in the fall to the rest of the field, uh, especially in the second half of that race. Uh, another one I, I'm curious to see, and, and we talked a little bit about this earlier with Logano and Elliott, but to, to kind of put a, put a bullet on it, uh, the stage points aggression that those type of, the, the Loganos and the Elliots and the Byrons and, and Boyer, uh, and even in a, in a Blaney, the guys that are in the tough point spots, how aggressive are they going to be? Yeah, and that was a pretty pivotal moment in the spring race at Talladega where we saw cars uh just stay out, collect those stage points. And that was one of the, I want to say, eight instances in which a green flag pit cycle coincided with the end of the stage. It's the same distance. Uh, I'm not a believer in caution trends, um, but I think it's fair to say if this race stays clean, we could see the same thing happen this Sunday. But RJ, I'm... Interested in contrarian strategy, the, you know, the, the four car bulwark that Stuart Haas had last fall or the Chevrolet blockade that we saw in the spring, that's good, right? If the, the crash inclusion rate is low, then the ideal strategy is to run in the front, stay in the front and block it off from anybody else. But once it's blocked off, no one can execute another strategy. So I want to see what the next thing is. Is it, Running in the back, are we going to see Joe Gibbs Racing bring up the rear in this one? Uh, who knows? And I'm anxious to find out. Uh, it would be a, it would be a hoot if we saw a, a winner uh, with an average running position of 31st in this race. It's Talladega. I'm, I'm up for anything. I mean, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the first time that the Gibbs Brigade has done that in this race. Uh, and, and given the points position of their of their three that are left, it probably behooves them to do that. You used behooves twice, and I dig it. This was a great episode, RJ. And thank you for filling in. Uh, you're no longer the fantasy mage. You're just the mage. Uh, a great friend of the pod. Let's close this out, shall we? We are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, we're probably there. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or a review. This helps the podcast gain visibility. Every one of these podcast networks has charts and rating systems. And this helps us jump up those charts. Uh, your help in spreading the word is appreciated. And if you have questions, we want to answer them on the podcast. We did this episode. Reach out on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. RJ, NASCAR.com. What are you working on this week? I will have uh, my weekly fantasy preview on Friday. Uh, it's Talladega. It's unpredictable. Uh, but 
there's probably some guys you can stay away from. I shouldn't say probably. There are some guys you used to stay away from, and there are some guys that are worth uh, plugging in your lineup. If you play the uh, NASCAR Fantasy Live game, there are no uses in the playoff game, so it's just straight up two playoff drivers, two non-playoff drivers, and uh, somebody in the garage that fits one of those two classifications who you can only swap out for either a playoff or non-playoff, depending on who you pick. Uh, so I'll have that coming, uh, and then we'll have a we'll have an update uh, on Saturday based on practice and qualifying. Although I I don't foresee that lineup changing too much. All right, our listeners that uh, that dabble in uh, the fantasy need to check that out. RJ RJ knows his stuff. Uh, as for me, uh, this week on the Athletic, a peer into the four drivers already eliminated from playoff contention. Uh, I'm going to write about what could change for them in 2020 for better and for worse. And I suspect you'll see an article pertaining to Talladega crashing. You know, I'm always good for one uh, before this weekend wraps. I enjoy prognosticating around the big one. I also appreciate the game planning that is built around it. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, for RJ Craft, I'm David Smith. This has been Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. Enjoy your weekend, everybody. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.